Greetings to each of you in Jesus' name. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter. I've kind of grown to enjoy going through a book or a section of a book. And I believe it was Brother Keith Crider when I was ordained bishop a couple months ago said, the one thing you probably won't be able to do as much is, is preach through a book and, you know, you, you, you won't, your opportunities are different. And I was kind of disappointed. So this morning I decided I was going to press on anyway. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it'll lead. Maybe Robert will have to take up the torch. <laughs> it's been almost exactly three months ago that we last looked at the book of 1 Peter. Completed looking at chapter 1. So this morning I'd like to go into chapter 2. And I'm just going to make a disclaimer I've always been told that you know, don't make a disclaimer that you didn't have enough time to study or you're not prepared enough or whatever. But I want to make a disclaimer that I, we're going to look at the first 10 verses this morning. And as this morning drew nearer, and as I continued to look over my notes and to study, I became more fully convinced that I am not treating these verses as adequately as I would like to. There is tremendous truths in these verses. And so while we're covering ten verses, I feel like that maybe we should just be covering three or four. But uh, may God add his blessing Let's go ahead and read these first ten verses. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Yea, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it containeth in this scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious." But unto them which be dis disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I don't know if you thought about it as we read that. This could be a Christmas message. It's speaking about 
the coming of the Lord and what he has offered us, what we can have because of him. But first of all, we see that this passage starts with the word wherefore. And where there's a wherefore or a therefore, it's referring back. And so I went back and tried to, in a nutshell, analyze what I felt like Peter was referring back to. And in chapter 1, we have Peter talking about our redemption through Jesus Christ. He talks about us being born again, not of corruptible seed, not of the things of this world, but of the things of God. He says the living and enduring word of God, the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that change, the new birth that's brought by accepting that message of salvation. And then, moving on in, in chapter 2, he's admonishing us that that salvation isn't just receiving something, but it also involves a putting off. And that's what we see here in the first, the first verse. where he says, laying aside. Several weeks ago, this, uh, our council meeting message, I spoke about the new birth, and I compared it to the process of metamorphosis. And I pointed out that if you saw a butterfly flying around and it still looked like it was half caterpillar, <laughs> you'd say, something's wrong here. And I see, that's what I see Peter saying here. He's saying that uh, if we're going to accept Christ and we're going to put on his nature, there's things that we need to be getting rid of. And he lists here some things that need to be laid aside. And that term to, to lay aside I want us to understand it in a strong enough sense. It's not a casual laying aside. It is a getting rid of. It is a transforming from what we were to what God is calling us to be. And to go back to that metamorphosis illustration... For that message, I did just a little bit of reading about that process of metamorphosis. And as I understand it, is that being is in the chrysalis stage. There are body parts that are absorbed and transformed into something new that has, bears no resemblance to what they were before. And I just think that is such an excellent illustration for us today that when we come to Christ, we're getting rid of some things that shouldn't be there, and we're transforming them to where we're a person that, in a lot of ways, doesn't resemble who we were before. So he says we're to lay aside all malice. I thought I knew what that meant. Uh, because the 
some of the modern translations interpret that the very same, with the very same word malice. The word malice as we use it today means to desire to cause pain, injury, or distress to another. In other words, if I have malice towards Daryl, I'm going to hope that he trips and falls on the way out of church. That's, that's malice. But I looked back at the, the Greek, original Greek word that was used here in, in the meaning. In the original Greek, the meaning is badness, depravity, trouble, naughtiness. So I think here, rather than speaking about having ill will towards someone, that we need to lay that aside, and we do need to lay that aside, but he's speaking of anything that would be part of our old nature. Anything sinful. Y'all just read those, those words, those descriptive words that were given in the, uh, in the Strong's definition. Badness. You're doing things that are bad. Depravity. Trouble, naughtiness. Those things need to be cast off and done away with. We're also to lay aside all guile. Guile is deceit. Deceit should have no part in our lives. We're told in Scripture that Satan is the father of lies. He is the father of deceit. We're also told that God is truth. There's, you know, there's nothing in God that changes. There's no falsehood in God. And so we're born out of the kingdom of, out of Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of deceit, into God's kingdom, the kingdom of truth. So all deceit needs to be laid aside. Or to lay aside hypocrisy. Hypocrisies, plural. And I think we know what that is, but it's acting one way on the surface while harboring something else within our hearts. And I think hypocrisy really goes hand in hand with deceit because really it's acted out deceit. It's saying that I look right. I'm doing what, on the surface, doing what I'm told to do, but inside, I have a rebellious attitude. I have a, uh, a disagree, you know, I'm, I'm in disagreement with, with, with what is appearing on the outside. And I think that's a temptation for all of us. We like to be identified as being conformed to what we're expected to be conformed to. But inside, hang on to some things that we should be letting go of. And I just put down a few things that I thought about. You know, maybe we're thinking thoughts that we shouldn't be thinking. That doesn't just mean impure thoughts. 
but thinking thoughts that are not Christ-like. Maybe we're listening to things that we shouldn't listen to, music or, you know, we come down pretty hard on, on listening to music we shouldn't, but what about listening to somebody's voice that we shouldn't listen to? There's a lot of audio that can lead our minds in the wrong direction, lead us into things that are of the world's kingdom and not of, of God's kingdom. Things we shouldn't be looking at. Yeah, we can do all those things and still put on a good front, and then we're hypocrites. We need to shed those caterpillar parts. As I've said before, we need to get rid of them all. And I know from my own personal experience, it's a process and it's difficult. And some of those, some of those parts want to keep growing back. But we need to strive to be clear of hypocrisy. Next, he lists envies. Envy is a, this is a dictionary definition, painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. Envy is that you're looking at others and saying, I wish I could have what they have. I wish I could be like they are. And having that desire to, to attain that when it is not yours to attain. And not completely, but I think that as I thought about this, I think that envy often, but not always, often is the desire to attain something that is going to elevate me. It's going to make me look good. It's going to make me look successful so that I'm elevated in other people's eyes. And you know, that goes directly against biblical teaching that we're to die to self and that we're to have a, a, a care and concern for our brothers and sisters that is equal to or greater than our care and concern for our own selves. Or to be looking out for the good of others rather than allowing those, those things. And, and, you know, we all face these things. We see somebody that has something that, that we wish we could have or does something we wish we could do. And, and that feeling of envy, envy starts to grow and well up inside of us. We need to crucify that. And I believe that not all, but much of the envy that we struggle with has its roots in the materialistic side of life. And we need to do our best to crucify ourselves to the glamour of material things. And if we do, that's going to be taking a huge step forward in overcoming this fault. He then lists putting off evil speaking, which is defamation or slander. Talking about someone behind their backs in an in a unkind way. 
You know, there's times that we might need to point out an issue, point out an inconsistency. That's not what this is talking about. It's speaking of, of doing what tears down rather than what builds up. We need to have a goal of, of building up and strengthening, not defaming or tearing down. And I see in this list of things that were put off, all of these things are things that are of, this, of self. They're self-promoting. And we need to, we need to, we need to be, I think he's saying here, we need to be rooting out that, that selfish motive that is the basis for these things. We need to get self off the throne. Moving on to verse 2 and 3. Peter says that if we've tasted the goodness of the Lord... We should have a hunger for his word. And he gives a beautiful analogy here of, of a newborn baby. And you know a newborn has an immediate desire for nourishment. We don't hear somebody say that so-and-so had a, had a new baby. And we don't say, oh, how old is it? Three days. Has it eaten yet? If that was the case, there would, we would say there is something drastically wrong if this baby hasn't eaten it yet in three days. In the same way as that newborn has a desire for nourishment, spiritually, the newborn should have a desire for God's Word, a desire to know more of God, to experience more of Him. When we taste God, we should never be satisfied. We should always come away with a longing for more if we have truly tasted of the Lord and His goodness and what He has offered us to be delivered from. And you know, in a physical sense, you feed that newborn. And what do mothers do? They start to weigh that newborn every day or couple of days or however often. Because they expect that, that that infant is going to grow because it's eating. It's healthy and it's eating and it's going to grow. And what happens? It grows. Does it keep eating the same however many ounces a day? No, that intake continues to increase. And the growth increases. And then somewhere along the line, we hit the teenage years, and we have teenagers with hollow legs that eat endlessly. But eating causes growth. And as, as there's growth, the appetite increases. And there's a spiritual parallel in that, that when we're, when we're born again, we develop an appetite for God's Word. And we feed on it, and we apply it to our lives, and we grow spiritually, and our appetite increases, and we continue to feed on God's Word. And it should be an ongoing process 
that we never tire of. Have any of y'all got tired of going to the table and eating? I don't see anybody raising your hands. Yo, everybody said, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of eating. I'm giving it up. I'm, I'm not going to eat anymore in life. It's the same with God's word. We should never tire of it. It should always, we should have a hunger and thirst for it. And it will cause growth as we apply it to our lives. And I just challenge us to examine our spiritual appetite. There's an old saying that says, sin will keep you from this book. And this book will keep you from sin. Allowing the wrong things in your life. Allowing some of these things like he listed in, in, in verse 1. And that's not a complete list. But allowing the wrong things in your life will diminish or take away your appetite for God's word. And you'll find yourself, instead of growing spiritually, you'll find yourself shrinking. So I challenge us all to think about our desire for God's word. And if you don't have that strong desire to daily spend time in his word, I challenge you to closely examine your life and see if there's something that is causing you to have that lack of appetite. And I believe that that appetite should be growing. Now there's a limit to how much we can, how much time a person can spend per day in God's word. But we should have, a, have an ever-expanding desire and appetite for his word. Another interesting phrase here is, says that we're to desire the sincere milk of the word. And I believe that's referring to the unadulterated doctrines of God's word. We need to be careful and we need to be aware that there is milk out there that is not the pure milk of the word. Teaching that is not in line with God's word. You know, we live in a time when there's there are those that teach that all paths lead to God. As long as everybody's trying, we're all going to make it. And I believe that that, that subtle influence affects our thinking. And we fail to recognize how critical it is to maintain solid biblical doctrines. not let our guard down. There are many good-sounding teachings that are not biblically sound. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean that it is true. Doesn't mean that it's biblically sound. And there's two antidotes, at least, against that. One is to be a student of God's Word. The more time that we spend in God's Word, and, and, and I'm... I am a proponent of studying the whole of Scripture. The more I read my Bible, the more I recognize how much the different Scriptures are intertwined and how things tie together. And if we're students of God's Word, we're going to, to be so much better prepared to identify inconsistencies if we come across them. 
It's like the illustration you've probably heard before that if they're training like a bank teller to identify counterfeits, they don't show them counterfeits, they show them the original. When you know the original, the counterfeits will stand out. The other antidote is to follow those leaders, those teachers who have exemplified a close adherence to the word and to sound doctrine. Those who are living according to the whole of scripture. People whose life and practice exemplifies a true surrender to the all of the gospel. Follow those who do not show an affinity towards the things of the flesh or excusing the things of the flesh. Use caution when someone says good things in one area, but they're disobeying clear t scriptural teaching in another area of their life. I'm not saying they never have something good to say, but use, use much caution. We want to stick with the sincere milk of the word. He goes on then, the next number of verses, to give a metaphor of the church. And he uses several Old Testament references. Speaking of Christ, and he depicts this as coming to Christ, a living stone. And stone is something that is, we think of as being secure, immovable, but not really alive. I've dealt with a lot of rock in my life, and I've never found any that was alive. It was there, it was firm, it was steadfast. But he's saying that, that, I believe what he's saying is that Christ is the foundation for the church. Christ is the foundation for our lives. He's solid like a rock, but yet he's not inanimate. He's alive. And he is building a spiritual house. It says that he is the cornerstone. And we're invited to be a part of that building. But to be a part of that building, we must take on his nature. Because it says that we will also be living stones, lively stones like Christ. Peter, quoting here from Isaiah 8, verse 4, and uh, verse 8, says that, speaking of Christ, he was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why is Christ a stumbling stone and why is he an offense? You ever think about that? We think of, we talk of people coming to the Lord. We talk about what Christ does for people. Why would he be in a, a stumbling stone and, a, and an offense? He says here that they stumbled at the word because they were disobedient. Christ's message has to be believed and accepted or it becomes a stumbling block. I think he was referring here 
at least somewhat, to the Jewish people that refuse to accept Jesus. Or their refusal to accept that the gospel message was as well for the Gentiles. But yet today, Christ is a stumbling block to many because they don't truly believe. They want what Christ offers, but they're not willing to accept the conditions of coming to him. Because to become a part of that spiritual building, to build upon Christ the cornerstone, we have to give up self. We have to crucify self. And that's not easy to accept. And I think that's why we see so many in the world today that profess a, Christ, a form of Christianity, but their lives don't demonstrate it. Because they want to, to try to claim what Christ's offering, but they refuse to accept the fact they have to give up self. And so Christ becomes a stumbling stone. We must accept the gospel message on his terms if we're going to build upon Christ. And we need to take on his identity. As he is a living stone, we as well have to take on that identity. Then moving on, in verse 9, it says that, But ye are a chosen generation, Think about that in contrast with those he talked about there in verse 8 who are disobedient, who refuse to believe. When we believe, we are the chosen ones. A belief that causes us to surrender to Christ. He says we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar or a set-apart people. God wants a nation or a group of people, not a nation as we think of it in a political sense, but God wants a group of people that is set aside, that is called out to be a ch His chosen people, a royal priesthood, people that, that worship Him, that bring Him honor and glory and praise. and that demonstrate what he has to offer, that demonstrate what his intent is for the human race. When we look at the world around us and we see all the trouble and, and all the turmoil of people's lives, that is not what God intended for people when he created us. God created us for something much greater. And that's what he's talking about here a peculiar, a set-apart people. We see that throughout Scripture. When God chose Abraham, when he called Israel out of Egypt, he was, that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to draw out a people for him who would do things his way, the blessed way. And I thought it was interesting that this basic statement that Peter makes is, is a quote not a, a complete quote, but a, a, a fairly close quote that's given at least four other places in the Old Testament. Speaking of God's people, and one of them is Deuteronomy 7, 6. 
It says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are on the face of the earth. So God was saying that you, the children of Israel, I'm, I'm choosing you to be mine. You're set apart from, from everyone else. And that's, that's what he wants from us today. And if we're going to be those set-apart people, we have to live holy lives. Our lives have to be set apart from the world around us. That's why it's so important that we clearly understand the two-kingdom principle. There needs to be a clear distinction between the world and between God's people. Because he's not going to allow anything into his kingdom that is a part of Satan's kingdom. That's why we need to take heed. We need to take inventory of our lives. So we read verses like verse 1 where it lists those things that he says must be laid aside. We need to experience a complete metamorphosis. Even though for myself it's an ongoing metamorphosis. It's an ongoing process of change. One thing that I thought I'd just bring in here along that line of this ongoing process, I fear sometimes that we try to sanctify the desires of, of the flesh so that we can chase after the same things that the world around us chases after, but yet put a good name on it. And we could probably list a lot of different things that we have a tendency to do that with. And I'm not trying to pick on one certain area of life, but it was the first illustration that came to my mind. And that is, the, in Scripture we have many warnings about our view of money and how our, and our possessions, what we do with with the material possessions that we have. And it's easy for us to say, I need to work hard and make a lot of money so I can give. And I've seen again and again that type of, of tendency or, or attitude where maybe the giving might increase a little, but that person's lifestyle probably increases at a greater rate than their giving does. And when we do that kind of thing, we are not fooling God. We are fooling ourselves. We need to be careful that we don't sanctify the desires of the flesh so that we can simply chase after the same things that the world chases after and put a good name on it. And when we do that, I think we are soiling the name of Christ and the reputation of the church and our communities. Moving on then, I'm going to drop down and just catch something from verse 10. He says, we were not a people. Previously, he's, he's speaking of Gentile people here. We were not a people. We were not part of the chosen ones. But through Christ... And through our surrender to him, we now have access. Everyone who, 
who is willing to name the name of Christ and surrender their life to him has access to be part of a, the people of God. Don't forget that this Christmas season. That's what Christmas is about. And then I want to jump back to the last part of verse 9. I want to point out that the purpose in all this is not about us, but it's about God. Yes, we experience tremendous blessings when we live for the Lord. But our real focus, our real reason, needs to be to show forth or to declare or proclaim the praise of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How do we do that? How do we show forth the praise of him who called us from out of darkness and into his marvelous light? You ever think about that? Do we go out and stand on the street corner and shout it out? It's poss possible we could, and that's not necessarily wrong. But I believe that one of the greatest ways of doing that is living that separated, called-out life that he's talking about in these verses. Because I believe there's no better testimony of the blessing of the Lord than, than for people to observe a life that is fully surrendered, a life that's living with Christ and others as its focus, not self. A life that's lived in quiet confidence in God and doing in, in the rightness of doing his will rather than following and chasing after the desires of the flesh. I just recently read a story in a book, and I think it was in the book Awaco Church by Barry Grant, and I couldn't go back and check because I loaned the book out. But Barry Grant told the story of being challenged by a co-worker that you are missing out on life. And he said he was missing out on life because of all of the things that Barry refused to do that his co-workers were doing. And one day Barry said, and, I, and I, again, Daryl has my book, so <laughs> I couldn't go back and look. But he listed some of the blessings in his life. And I forget what all they were, but it was a faithful wife that loved him and would be waiting at home for him with open arms. And his family, and I forget what all it was. And he just started listing this, these blessings. And he looked at that man and he said, am I missing out? And he said the man kind of hung his head and said, no, you're not missing out on anything. God's way is best. Let's live it. Let's exemplify it. Let's get rid of those things of the flesh that want to creep into our lives, whether they're the ones listed here in, in verse 1 or whether they're other things, and let's surrender to God's way and live it and exemplify it because it is best. Praise God that you and I have access to be the chosen people of God, that we can be people that are set apart 
from the world, that we don't have to be a part of that mess out there, and that we can be freed from the bondage of sin, and we can be a part of that beautiful building that Christ is building of living stones. May God bless you.